In this episode of Scaling Postgres, we talk about easy foreign data wrappers, JSONB cheat sheet, updating cost limit, and parallel aggregates. I'm Creston Jameson, and this is Scaling Postgres, episode 261. All right, I hope you, your friends, family, and coworkers continue to do well. Our first piece of content is making a data polyglot with PostgreSQL foreign data wrappers. This is from richyen.com. And this was a pretty simple post, but it shows you how quickly you can build a foreign data wrapper to be able to interact with essentially any API. Now, what a foreign data wrapper is, it enables you to contact a external source. It could be another Postgres server. It could be an Oracle server. It could be a spreadsheet. It could be a flat file somewhere. It could even be an API. And it allows you to run select queries against that foreign table as if it was a local table. And in this post, he's creating a foreign data wrapper against a CloudSmith API. And what he uses to do it is something called multicorn which doesn't really explain what it does from the name to me, but allows you to easily create extensions using Python. So frequently you would use C to write extensions in Postgres, but this allows you to do it in Python. And he says right here, quote, over 50 of the foreign data wrappers listed on the PostgreSQL wiki page are written for access via Multicorn. So basically once you install Multicorn, then you can write your foreign data wrapper using Python classes. So he grabbed the MailChimp foreign data wrapper as an example and just modified some classes and he was able to get it working. And to actually use it, you just say create extension multicorn. You create your foreign server, giving it a specific options, create a schema, and then create the foreign table in that schema that matches what the API returns, including your key for the API down here. And now you can just select all the records from this particular table and it pulls it in from the API. So this seems super easy to do. So if you have a use case for wanting to interact with other sorts of APIs, maybe this is a route you could go. But if you want to learn more about that, check out this blog post. Next piece of content, PostgreSQL JSONB Cheat Sheet Complete and Fast Lookup Guide. This is from Dev2 in the Francisco Dizio section. And he basically created a JSONB cheat sheet here and there's a high resolution copy you can download and this is great because I use JSONB but not every day and whenever I need to use it I always have to google or look up in the documentation how to do certain functions and having this as a ready reference is awesome so definitely check out this piece of content and download this resource if you're interested in that as well next piece of content updating the cost limit on the fly this is from arhas.blogspot.com and apparently an enhancement was just added to Postgres 16 that enables you to modify the vacuum cost limit while a vacuum job is running. So let's imagine a scenario where you have a very large table and vacuum is taking forever to run, days, could even be a week, but the resources of the server are not fully utilized. What that usually means is that you need to alter your vacuum configuration or your auto vacuum configuration. And the number one value to increase, in my opinion, is the vacuum cost limit. And boosting that up will allow more work to be done per unit of time and vacuum that table faster. But the problem prior to this enhancement is that it doesn't affect already running vacuum jobs. So if you're in the middle of that huge table vacuuming, altering this configuration won't alter that job. It's for any new jobs that are started. 
But with this enhancement, it now updates that actively running job so it will use more resources and therefore run faster. So this is awesome. If you want more details, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, Parallel Aggregate, PostgreSQL 16, Better Performance. This is from cyberduck-postgresql.com. And they're talking about parallel aggregates where basically you're able to use multiple processes to do aggregation. This is things like sums or averages or finding a max or a min. And in Postgres 16, the capability to do aggregations in parallel has been done for the array aggregate function and the string aggregate function. So they show an example of that here where they create a table, insert some test data, they change the settings of doing parallel work to be zero so they can ensure that they get a parallel plan. They do an explain plan of that query against the table they created. And they can see that the cost limit is 117. You can see that it's doing a gather merge, so it's doing a parallel aggregate. And when you compare it to a previous version, this is from Postgres 13, you can see the cost is 185. So not quite twice as fast, but a significant improvement from 118 to 185 in terms of performance doing that aggregate in parallel. So if you want to learn more about this feature, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content is Lucas's five minutes of Postgres. And he's looking at vacuum cost limit and parallel aggregate improvements in Postgres 16. This is from pganalyze.com. And basically the two previous posts is what he reviews and what he's looking forward to in Postgres 16. So if you want to look at his perspective of these changes, definitely check out his piece of content. Next piece of content, SQL Maxis, why we ditched RabbitMQ and replaced it with a Postgres queue. This is from prequel.co, and this post describes exactly what they did and why. Now, when they started talking about dropping RabbitMQ for a queue within Postgres, I had envisioned they were going to be using Listen and Notify to be able to process jobs, for example. But actually, their jobs are really long running. Like, there's some that are the order of seconds, but some can be on the order of hours because they're transferring and processing a massive amount of data. So really, it seems like a case of really large jobs run less frequently. And for that, it looks like they just created a data table in Postgres and just kept that updated based upon the status. So it was just pure SQL and tables to do the queue. So really, RabbitMQ was a bit heavy on that. But I always enjoy these retrospectives in real world uses of technology. So if you're interested in learning more about this, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content is actually a set of posts all about the PG SQL Friday post submissions on triggers. So the first one was from mydbanotebook.org and she was the sponsor of this month's PG SQL Friday. And basically she leans on developers not using triggers at all and, and equates them to sharp knives given to toddlers because she sees so many performance problems with using triggers. And she struggles to find legitimate use cases for them. Uh, she says a lot of people suggest auditing, but she really doesn't think that should be used either. And that instead use extensive Postgres logging to say a CSV format to be able to collect all of that information. The next post on the topic is called Triggers a Love-Hate Relationship. This is from softwareandbooze.com. And this is a pretty substantial post. I'll cover a, a few points here. He says the problems with triggers, order of execution. In other words, it's hard to determine sometimes when a given trigger will fire. In terms of Postgres, it's basically executed alphabetically. So just make sure if you have multiple triggers that they're in the proper alphabetical order that you want them to fire. Uh, triggers are easy to mess up in potentially mess up your data. 
Three, triggers impact performance. Absolutely. And then bonus, uh, triggers hide logic. And this is why I really don't like using a lot of triggers because it's kind of magic behind the scenes, at least to some developers. But in terms of benefits, he likes using them for audit tables. He likes using them to propagate changes. And also when building a queue, I'm not so sure about these particular ones. I think I'd rather have it within a transaction doing what's needed to be done as opposed to in a trigger. And then automatically updating a column, which I can see use cases for that. If you can't use generated columns, I would definitely choose that over a trigger. But definitely a lot of perspective on that you can check out. The next post on this is stop. Trigger time. This is from PG Mustard. And he actually emphasizes that triggers are actually used for some internal purposes, mainly keeping foreign key constraints accurate. And he gives an example here where he creates an author's table, a books table with a foreign key. He inserts a lot of records into authors, a lot of records into books. Then he deletes one of the authors. And as a consequence, because of that foreign trigger, the execution time takes 14 milliseconds, of which almost 14, 13.9 milliseconds of that time is due to doing a search on the books table to make sure that referential integrity is maintained. So this indicates a potential problem. How you solve it is you put an index on your foreign keys. So generally, that's my recommendation when you're indexing a table. Of course, you have a primary key and you want to index your foreign keys. So when that foreign key is added and he deletes another author, you can see the execution time is now 1.2 milliseconds. So definitely absolutely faster. But check out this post if you want to learn more. The next piece of content on this topic is a word about triggers. This is from hdombrovoskaya.wordpress.com. And this is a little bit of a shorter response, but she says triggers definitely shouldn't be banned. And she has had some use cases where they have been beneficial, particularly when she's talking about her permission settings that she had to set up that was quite complex. Next post in the series is audit data with triggers. This is from rustprooflabs.com. And this is another vote for advocating using it for audit purposes. And he actually writes a whole post about how to write an auditing capability in your database using triggers. Next post on the topic is triggers for tracking changes in a table. This is from andreas.sherbaum.la. And he's again talking essentially about auditing. Next blog post on the subject is The Art of the Trigger. This is from Diane M. Fay at die.nmfay.com. And she says something very important here, that some databases can use triggers to encode automatic behaviors and responses and are infamously hard to understand. Now, she covers a lot of other points here that you should definitely review. But in terms of my perspective on triggers, this is the number one reason why I don't want to use a lot of them because it's a bit like magic. In other words, you go to do an update, an insert, a delete, and then some side effect happens that maybe you're not expecting. They're kind of a little bit like callbacks in programming. You update a record and then something over here gets changed that you're not expecting. I'd rather be much more explicit. Like for example, if you want to update two other tables, go ahead and put that in a transaction and explicitly do those updates as opposed to relying on a trigger. But there are three areas that I like using triggers. One is for DBA operations. Like if we're having to change a int to a big int column and we want to keep that column in sync or keep a whole table in sync, triggers are the way to go. They're a temporary use case for that purpose. The third is updating columns when generated columns won't work. I had a use case where I had to search on names 
and it was important to actually remove the accents from the names before doing a full text search. And based upon how the unaccent extension worked, I believe we couldn't use generated columns. So basically we had to use a trigger. So that's another use case where triggers had to be used. And the third is auditing. Now, if all you need to do is audit and review something internally, you could get by with using the PostgreSQL logs to do it. But if you're wanting to present something to your stakeholders or your users from within the database itself, it can make a lot of sense to implement auditing on a subset of the tables. And I really don't think you get yourself into too much danger by simply doing inserts into a separate audit table. Yes, there will be an impact, but inserts are generally pretty fast. But those are kind of my use cases where I would tend to use triggers. Next piece of content, Postgres 16 highlight. Require auth for libpq. This is from pakir.xyz. And he's talking about an enhancement where now the libpq library can request certain authentication modes. So for example, now you can say when you do a connection that you only want to use scramsha256. Now this helps prevent downgrade attacks where maybe the server says, no, I'm only going to use MD5 or no, I'm only going to use trust authentication or something like that. This ensures from the client level to also ensure some amount of security. So if you want to learn more about that, definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, we seem to have a new connection pooler now called Supervisor, which is, as they say, a Postgres connection pooler. Now, this isn't a blog post. It's a tool, which I don't normally mention, but given the couple of posts in the last few episodes about PGCAT being a new connection pooler, I thought I'd mention Supervisor here as well. So you can check out the code on github.com. Next piece of content, fun with PostgreSQL puzzles, finding shortest paths and travel costs with functions. This is from crunchydata.com. And this is actually the day 16th challenge of the advent of code. So I won't go over this post here because that would essentially spoil it. But if you're interested in learning more about a traveling sales problem, essentially, you can definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, how collation of punctuation and whitespace works. This is from peter.eisentrout.org. And this follows upon the post he did previously talking about how collation works. And this specifically focuses in on punctuation and whitespace. So if you're interested in that, you can definitely check out this blog post. Next piece of content, setting up PostgreSQL failover and failback the right way. This is from hygo.ca. They're talking about setting up Postgres to be able to fail over, which is usually just using the promote command from a PGCTL or failing back. You can use PG Rewind for that purpose. So this blog post explains how to do that and set it up. Next piece of content, PostgreSQL schema, learning PostgreSQL with Grant. This is from redgate.com. And he's talking about using schemas, which are essentially namespaces for your objects in the database, how you can set them up, organize them, as well as how you can control the default search path for being able to navigate between different schemas. So if you want to learn more about that, check out this blog post. Next piece of content, there was another episode of Postgres FM last week. This one was on partitioning, and they cover, as they say here, what it is, why, and when it's helpful and some considerations for your partition key. So if you're interested in that, definitely listen to their episode or check out their YouTube video here. Next piece of content, the PostgreSQL person of the week is Joel Cadden. If you're interested in learning more about Joel, definitely check out this piece of content. And the last piece of content, we did have another episode of the Rubber Duck Dev Show this past Thursday afternoon. This one was on developer documentation with Grant Wilcox. 
So we discussed different ways you can do documentation in your code, as well as for your product in general. If you're interested in that sort of content, we welcome you to check out our show. That does it for this episode of Scaling Postgres. You can get links to all the content mentioned in the show notes. Be sure to head over to scalingpostgres.com where you can sign up to receive weekly notifications of each episode, or you can subscribe via YouTube or iTunes. Thanks.